Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 37. It was a cool morning as the sun broke through the mist, low on the sky. Emily met me on the stone road outside the castle gate. You rise early, Hugh DeLuke. And you, lady. I'm sorry to have brought you out so early in the morn. She smiled bravely. It is for a good purpose, I hope. I hope so, too, I said. She had on her brown cloak, which she always wore for matins. She cinched the collar against the mist. I stood before her in my ridiculous jester's outfit. I did a sprightly hop and a jump that made her laugh. I hear it is you I have to thank for the new duds, I bowed. What thanks, she curtsied. A jester cannot do his work without looking the part. Besides, your other clothes reeked of a particular smelly beast. I smiled, fixing on her soft green eyes. I feel the fool in front of you, my lady. Not to me. You look quite dashing, if I say so. The dashing jester. Not what is normally thought of as right. Emily's eyes glistened. Did I not tell you, Hugh, that I have a penchant for not doing what is considered right? You did tell me. I nodded. We stood and stared at each other for a long while, the space empty of words. A rush of feelings rose in my chest. This beautiful girl had done so much for me. If not for her, I would have been dead, a bloody mound on the side of the road. I reached my hand out to hers. There was a spark between us, a warmth against the cool of the morning. I let my hand linger, longer than I could have dreamed. She did not pull away. I owe you so much, Lady Emily. I fear I owe you a debt I can never repay. Yell me nothing, she said, her chin raised, but to be on your quest and to complete it safely. I didn't know what else to say. For me, there had only been Sophie. Each night I went to sleep with my mind dancing with a thousand images of our lives together, my hands aching to touch her skin once more. I loved my wife, and yet this woman had done so much and got nothing in return. I wanted to take her in my arms and let her know how I felt. The strongest surge swelled inside of me. It gave me a trembling in every bone in my body. Wait, what are we saying when we're saying a strongest surge? Dude, you're married. I understand that she helped you out, but the strongest surge, I held her in my arms. This all sounds a little bit like you. So I creep like that's what we're sounding like right now. And no, I know that you have your wife on your mind, but at the same time, you got this green eyed lady in front of you. And all of a sudden you ready to risk it all. That's what it's sounding like right now. Cut that out. Stay focused. I hope with all my heart, your Sophie is alive. Emily finally said. She is alive. I know it. My hand was still cupping hers. Let it go. When I finally pulled it away, I felt a loss, but also a small object pressed inside of my palm, wrapped in a linen cloth. This was in your clothes, Emily said, when I first found you on the road. I unwrapped it. The breath froze in my chest. It was a broken comb with the painted edge I had found in the cinders of our inn. Sophie's comb. Emily's eyes were liquid and courageous, her voice strong. She took my hand. Go find her, Hugh DeLuke. I truly believe that is what you were saved for. I nodded. I squeezed her hand back with all my might. In all the world, I hope to see you again, my lady. 
in all the world. I hope to see you again too, Hugh DeLuke. It pains me that you have to leave. I let her go and tossed my sack upon my back. I picked up my staff and started south on the true road to Triel. I took a skip and a hop and twirled around to take a final look at Emily. She was still watching me and smiled bravely. What's she smiling bravely for? She don't... Y'all ain't together. I wondered, with all the world that separated us, how I had deserved such a lovely friend. Goodbye, I whispered under my breath. I thought I saw her lips move too. Goodbye, Hugh. For those of y'all who don't know, okay, so if you're far enough away from somebody and you mouth the words olive oil, it looks like you're saying I love you. Olive oil. Olive oil. Olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter 38. The armored raiders swept down upon the sleeping manor. It was a large stone house in a neighboring duchy, miles from the nearest town. I will make them pay, Black Cross promised. No man is bold enough to steal from God, especially not the true relics of Christendom. At first, there was a yip of dogs as the massive chargers thundered out of the calm night. Then torches lit up the darkness and everything went ablaze. The horsemen set fire to the stables, horses bucking and neighing in fright. A few terrified workers who had been sleeping there ran out and were mowed down by the blades of hard metal charging by. The manor burst alive with light. Six dark knights dismounted and two of them crashed through a heavy wooden door with their axes. Black Cross burst inside with his men. The knight of the manor appeared in the doorway inside. His name was Adamar. All of France knew of this old man, this renowned fighter, who still stood with a strength that spoke of his past. Behind him, his wife huddled in a bedgown. The knight had donned his tunic. It bore the purple and gold fleur-de-lis of the king. Who are you? Adamar challenged the raiders. What do you want here? A piece of gold, old man. From your last campaign, said Black Cross. I am no banker, intruder. My last campaign was in service to the Pope. Then it should not be so hard to remember. What we seek was plunder from a tomb in Edessa. Edessa? The old knight's eyes flicked from intruder to intruder. How do you know this? The noble Adamar's fame is well known, Black Cross said. Then you also know I fought with Williams at Hastings. That's why I wear the gold flare, awarded to me by King Philip himself. That is why I have defended the faith at Acre and Antioch, where my blood still lies. We know all of this, Black Cross smiled. In fact, that is why we are here. He signaled to one of his men, who bound the arms of the knight's wife. Adamar moved the defender, but he was pinned by the blade of a sword to his neck. You insult me, intruder. You shall know face or colors. Who are you? Who has sent you? Tell me, so I will know you when I meet you in hell. Know this, Black Cross said, and lifted his helmet, revealing the dark cross burned into the side of his neck. The old knight fell silent with recognition. Take us to the relic, Black Cross said. His henchmen dragged the couple through their house, the knight's wife screaming futilely at her captors. They went through a stone arch leading to a rear courtyard, where there was a small chapel. Inside was a bronze altar with a crucifix hanging above. In Edessa, you looted the tomb of a Christian shrine. In the reliquary, there were crosses, investments, and coins. 
There was also a gold box. In it were ashes. That is all we came for. Just a box filled with ash. Black Cross grabbed a war axe from one of his cohorts and raised it over the knight's head. The knight closed his eyes. As the knight's wife shrieked, Black Cross swung the axe in a mighty arc, narrowly missing the knight, smashing the stone floor beneath the altar. The rock crumbled under the mighty blow. Beneath the masonry, a hidden space came into view. Inside was a gold arc wrapped in cloth. One of Black Cross's men knelt and lifted it. He smashed a valuable chest as if it were a trinket. He lifted out a simple wooden box. He opened the lid and gazed awestruck at the dark sand inside. It is blasphemy that you should hold such a thing in his name, the old knight glared. Black Cross's eyes lit up with rage. Then we shall let him decide. Black Cross scanned the broken chapel, his gaze coming to rest on the crucifix hanging on the wall. Such a spirit of faith, brave knight. We must make sure such faith is recognized for all to see. Chapter 39 My journey to Triel took six days. The first two, the road was busy with travelers. Peddlers dragging their carts, workers with tools and other belongings, pilgrims headed back home. By the third day, the villages grew smaller, and so did the traffic. By the fourth, at dusk, I huddled under a tree for a stingy meal of bread and cheese. I could not rest long. Triel was but a good day's walk away now, and the anticipation of reaching there and finding Sophie beat through my blood like a restless drum. I decided to travel a bit farther, until darkness completely set in. I heard voices up ahead, then shouts and a woman's cry. I came upon a merchant family, husband, wife, and son, in the midst of being attacked by two robbers. One of the scavengers grabbed a prize, a ceramic bowl. Look what I have, shorty, a piss bowl. Please, the merchant begged. We have no money. Take the wares if you must. The one called shorty sneered. Let's have a trade. You can have your piss bowl back for a stab at your wife. The blood pounded in my veins. I did not know these people. And I had my own pressing needs in Triel, but I couldn't stand by and watch them be robbed and possibly murdered. I put down my pack and crept closer behind some brush. Finally, I stepped out from my cover. Shorty's eyes fell upon me. He was stumpy and barrel-chested, balding on top, but very muscular. I knew I made a ridiculous sight in my leggings and skirt. Let them be, I said. Leave them and go. What do we have here? The fierce outlaw grinned toothlessly. A pretty fairy come out of the woods. You heard the man. I came closer with my staff. Take what you have. You can sell it in the next town. That's what I would do. Shorty stood up, hardly about to buckle under a threat being delivered by someone in a jester suit. What I would do, eh, big shot? What I would do is run off now. Your bad jokes aren't needed here. Let me try another, I said, stepping forward. How about this one? Name the sexual position that produces the ugliest children. Shorty and his partner shared looks, as if they could not believe what was going on. Don't know, Shorty? I gripped my staff. Well, why don't we just ask your mother? The tall one grunted a slight laugh, but Shorty silenced him with a look. He lifted his club above his shoulders. I watched his eyes grow narrow and mean. You really are a fool, aren't you? Before all the words left his lips, I swung my staff. It cracked him firmly in the mouth and sent him reeling. 
He grabbed his jaw and then raised his weapon again. Before he could swing it, I sprang forward and whacked my stick across his shin, doubling him over in pain. I wrapped his shin again and he screamed. The other came at me, but as he did, the merchant rushed forward and thrust his torch into the outlaw's face. His entire head was engulfed in flames. The man howled and smacked at his head to smother the flames. Then his clothing caught fire and he fled into the woods, screaming, followed by Shorty. The merchant and his wife came up to me. We owe you thanks. I am Jeffrey, the merchant extended his hand. I have a ceramic stall in Triel. This is my wife Isabel and my son Thomas. I'm Hugh. I took his hand. A jester, could you tell? Tell us, Hugh, his wife inquired. Where do you head? I head to Triel as well. Then we can go the rest of the way together, Jeffrey offered. We don't have much food left, but what there is, you're welcome to share. Why not, I agreed, but I think we better put some space between us and the night crawlers. My pack's just over here. Jeffrey's son asked, are you going to Triel to be a jester at our court? I smiled at the boy. I hope to, Thomas. I've heard the one there now has grown a bit dull. Maybe he has, Jeffrey shrugged, but you'll have a difficult job in front of you. How long has it been since you've been to our town? Three years, I answered. He lifted the handles of his cart. These days, I'm afraid you'll find Triel a hard place to get a laugh. Chapter 40 We had barely cleared the forest two mornings later when Jeffrey pointed ahead. There it is. The town of Triel, glistening through the sun, perched atop a high hilltop. Was Sophie truly there? There was a cluster of ochre-colored buildings knotted on the rise. Then, at its peak, the large gray castle, two towers thrust into the sky. I have been to Triel twice before, once to settle a claim against a knight who would not pay his bill, and the other with Sophie to go to market. Jeffrey was right. As we approached the outlying village, I could tell the Triel had changed. Look how the farmer's fields lie fallow, he said, pointing, while over there, the Lord's domain is neatly planted. Indeed, I could see how the smaller plots of land set unworked, while the duchy's fields, bordered by solid stone fences, flourished. Closer to town, other serious signs of decline were everywhere. A wooden bridge over a stream had so many holes in the boards that we could barely pass. Fences were broken and run down. I was dumbstruck. I remember Triel is thriving and prosperous, the largest market in the duchy, a place of celebration on Midsummer's Eve. We climbed the steep, windy hill that rose towards the castle. The streets stank from waste, the runoff from the castle lining the edges of the road. The pigs were out. Each morning, people got rid of their garbage by tossing it out on the streets. Then pigs were let loose to feed on the waste. Their morning meal was enough to turn my stomach. At a crowded corner, Jeffrey announced, Our stall is down the street. You're welcome to stay with us, Hugh, if you have another place. I declined. I had to get started on my quest, which lay inside the castle. The merchant embraced me. You'll always have a friend here. And by the way, my wife's cousin works in the castle. I will tell her what you did for us. She'll be sure to save you the best scraps of meat. Thanks. I winked to Thomas and hopped around a bit until I got a laugh. Come visit me, if I get the job. I waved as I left them behind, then walked through town, making my way up the hill. People stared, and I grinned and juggled my way into my new role. A new gesture was like the arrival of a troop of players, festive and gay. A crowd of raggedy children followed me, 
dancing around with shouts and laughs. Yet my heart pounded with the worrisome task that lay ahead. Sophie was here. I could feel it. Somewhere in all this stone and decay, she clung on. It took me nearly an hour to wind through the streets and finally make my way to the castle gates. A squad of uniformed soldiers in milk-pale helmets and Baldwin's purple and white colors stood manning the lower drawbridge, checking people going in. The line had backed up. Some passed through. Others, arguing their case, were rudely pushed away. This was it. My new pretext. My first test. My stomach churned. Please let me be up to this. Taking a deep breath, I stepped up to the gate. And once again, I could feel Sophie. Chapter 41 What's this, Jester? You have business here? A brusque-looking captain of the guard eyed me up and down. I have, your grace. I bowed to the guard and smiled. It is business that I have come for and business I will do. Important business. Not as important as yours, your grace, but the stuff of lords, I mean, laughs. Shut your trap, fool, the guard glowered. Who awaits you inside? The lord awaits me. And my Sophie. The guard scrunched his brow. The lord awaits you? The lord awaits us all. I grinned and winked. Some people waiting in line began to chuckle. Lord Baldwin, then, I went on. It is he who awaits me. He just does not know it yet. Lord Baldwin? The guard screwed up one eye. What do you take me for, a fool? He roared laughter. I bowed humbly. You're right, sir. I am not needed if such a wit as you is already here. You must truly keep the barracks up all night in stitches. We already have a fool, Jester. His name is Palimpost. Not your lucky day, eh? It seems we're all fooled up. Well, now we're too fooled, aren't we? I exclaimed. I had to say something that would gain me support. Even this mold worm must be able to be charmed or swayed. I knelt down to a farmer's boy. I poked at his chin, his nose, then snapped my fingers, and a small dried plum appeared in my hand. The child squealed with delight. It is a sad day, boy, is it not, when a laugh is barred with a sword. Don't tell me the great Lord Baldwin has something to fear from a laugh. There was a trickle of applause from the bystanders. Come on, Sergeant, a pretty fat woman called. Let the fool in. What harm can he cause? Even his fellow guards seemed to give in. Let him through, Albert. The man's right. Things can use some lightening up around here. Yes, Albert. I added, I, I mean, your grace, things could use some lightning. Here, hold this. I gave him my sack. That's much lighter. Thank you. I folded my arms. Get your ass through, the guard growled at me, before I end up on the point of my lance. He thrust my sack back into my ribs. I bowed a last time, winking thanks to the woman and the farmers I hurried through. A tremor of relief passed through me. I was in. The drawbridge groaned under my feet. The walls of the castle loomed high above. Across the bridge, I entered a large courtyard. Busy people were scurrying to and fro. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know if Sophie was here, or even alive. A knot tightened in my chest. I stepped up to the castle entrance. The sun was high. It was before noon. Court was still being sessioned. I had work to do. I was a jester. Chapter 42 Baldwin's court was held in the Great Hall, down the main corridor through tall stone arches. 
I followed the official traffic. Knights dressed in casual leggings and tunics. Pages scurrying at their sides, holding their helmets and arms. Courtiers in colorful robes and cloaks with plumed feathers on their hats. Petitioners of the court, both noble and common. And everywhere I walked, I searched for Sophie. People caught my eye and smiled. I, in turn, responded with a wink or a juggle, or a quick sleight of hand. My role was working so far. A man in a patchwork skirt and tights, juggling a set of balls. Who would believe such a man could be up to any harm? The din of a large crowd ushered me towards the great hall. Two tall oak doors engraved with panels depicting the four seasons stood at each side of the entrance. Soldiers holding halberds stood at attention, blocking the way. My blood was pounding. I was here. Baldwin sat on the other side. All I had to do was talk my way in. A herald wearing the lion's shield of Baldwin seemed to be keeping track of appointments. Some were told to sit and wait. Others, brimming with self-importance, were allowed in. When it was my turn, I stepped up and announced boldly, I am Hugh from Bore, cousin of Palimpos the Droll. I was told I could find him here. At the herald's quizzical gaze, I whispered to him, Family Enterprise. I pray from the funny side of the family, the herald sniffed. He gave me a quick once over. You'll no doubt find him snoozing with the dogs. Just keep out of their way while business is in session. To my shock, he waved me in. Through the wide doorway, I stepped into the great hall. The room was enormous, at least three stories tall, rectangular and long. It was filled with a throng of people, standing in line for the Duke's attention or sitting idly around long tables. A voice rang out above the din. From behind a huddle of merchants and moneylenders arguing about ledgers, I pushed to a vantage point where I could see. It was Baldwin. He was sitting, more like slouching on a large, high-backed oak chair elevated above the floor. A totally uninterested look was on his face, as if these boring proceedings were all that held him from a preferred day of hunting and hawking. Beneath him, a petitioning commoner knelt on one knee. Baldwin. The sight of him sent a chill racing down my spine. For weeks, I had thought a little more than driving my knife through the base of his neck. His jet black hair fell to his shoulders, and his chin was sharp, with a short black beard. He was wrapped in a purple and white robe over a loose-fitting blouse and tights. I spotted my new rival, Palimpost, in similar garb to mine, reclining on a step to Baldwin's side, throwing dice. Some formal matter was under discussion. A yellow-clad bailiff, pointing towards the kneeling surf, said, The petitioner seeks to deny the right of patrimony, Lord. The right of patrimony, Baldwin turned to an advisor, is the right of the firstborn not the foundation of all property law? It is, my lord, the advisor agreed. For nobles, for men of property, yes, the petitioner said, but we are humble farmers. This flock of sheep is all we have. My older brother is a drunkard. He hasn't done a day's work at the farm in years. My wife and I, this farm is everything to us. It's how we pay our fife to you. You, farmer, Baldwin peered at him. You are a working man at all costs. You do not drink yourself? On holidays, perhaps. The farmer hesitated, not knowing how to answer. At feasts, when we celebrated our vows. So it seems I'm forced to decide how to divide these sheep between two drunkards, Baldwin grinned. A wave of laughter echoed through the cavernous room. But my lord, the farmer rose. 
Be still, the duke cautioned. The law must be obeyed. And to do so, the flock must be transferred to a firstborn, he continued. Is that not right? Yet your reserve is warranted, I think, farmer. Should the flock be wasted, we will not be enriched in any way. It occurs to me that there is an option. He beamed at the room. I am a firstborn. The petitioner gasped. You, my lord? Yes, Baldwin smiled broadly. The first of the firstborn. Wouldn't you say so, Chamberlain? You are the lord, my liege. The Chamberlain bowed. Therefore, it seems the law will be upheld nicely should these precious sheep revert to me, Baldwin declared. The horrified farmer looked around for some support. So, I take them, Baldwin announced, in the name of patrimony. But my lord, the farmer pressed, these sheep are all we have. Anger swept through me. I wanted to lunge at Baldwin, plunge my dagger into his throat. This was the man who had stolen everything from me, with the same ease and indifference with which he now ruined this poor farmer. But I had to restrain myself. It was Sophie I came for, not revenge against this pig of a man. A page leaned over to Baldwin. Your hawks await, my lord. Good. Is there any more business before the court? Baldwin asked, implying he wanted none. I swallowed nervously. This was my chance. Why I had come. I pushed my way to the front. I have business, my lord. Chapter 43 There is a matter of your western lands, I called out from the throng of petitioners. Who speaks? Baldwin asked, startled. A surprised buzz worked through the crowd of petitioners. A knight, your lordship, I shouted. I have taken a raiding party and sacked and burned all the villages of your enemies in the west. Baldwin stood up. He leaned over to a seneschal. But we don't have any enemies in the West. I took a deep breath and edged myself out from the crowd. I'm sorry, Lord, but I fear that you do now. Slowly, steadily, a trail of laughter wound through the room. As the joke became clear, it grew heartier. It is a fool, I heard someone say. A performance. Baldwin glared and stepped towards me. His icy stare made my blood run cold. Who are you, fool? What has prompted you to speak? I am Hugh, from Boray, I bowed. I have studied under Norbert, the famous jester there. I am informed that your court is greatly in need of a laugh. A laugh? My court hungers for a laugh? Baldwin squinted uncomprehendingly. You are certainly full-born, man, I grant you that, and you come all the way from the big city to amuse us. That is so, my lord. I bowed again, nerves flashing through me. Well, your journey is wasted, the noble said. We already have a fool here, don't we, Palimpos, my droll pet? The jester sprang up, an old, club-footed man with white hair and thick lips, who looked as if he had just been jolted awake. With all due respect, I said, stepping into the middle of the room and addressing the court. I have heard the Palimpos couldn't get a laugh from a drunken sot, that he has lost his touch. I say, hear me out. If you're not happy, I'll be on the way. The boy sports a challenge to you, Baldwin grinned at his jester. Restrain him, my lord, Palimpos said. Do not listen. He only means to create unrest in your duchy. Our only unrest, my dizzy-eyed fool, is from the dullness of your wit. Perhaps the lad is right. 
Let us see what he brings from Bore. Baldwin stepped down from his platform. He made his way across the room to me. Make us laugh and we'll see about your future. Fail and you'll be practicing jokes for the rats in our keep. It's fair, my lord, I bowed. I will make you laugh. Chapter 44 I stood in the center of the huge room. A hundred pairs of eyes were on me. In a group of lounging knights, I spotted Norcross, the Duke's military man, his chatelaine. I eyed him tremulously, though he did not look my way. Every sense told me this was the man who killed my son. You have all no doubt heard the tale of the cow from Amiens, I crowed. People looked at one another and shook their heads. We have not, someone yelled out. Tell us, Jester. These two peasants had a single denier between them. So, to enlarge their fortune, they decided to buy a cow, and every day they would sell its milk. Now, as everyone knows, the best cows in the land come from Amiens. So, they went there, and they tried the denier for the best cow they could find, who yielded lots of milk. And they sold the milk each morning. Soon, one of them said, If we can make this fine cow, we'll have two. We can double our milk and our money. So, they searched their village and found the finest bull. Soon, they were going to be rich. I scanned the room. Everyone seemed to hang on my words. A hundred smiles, knights, ladies-in-waiting, even the duke himself. I had them. I had their ears. The day of the mating, they brought in the bull. First, he tried to mount the cow from behind, but the cow wiggled away. Then, the bull came at her from the left, but the cow wriggled his rump to the right. If it came from the right, the cow wiggled left. I spotted an attractive woman and went up to her. I smiled and wiggled my own rump, just enough to be considered cute. The crowd ooed with delight. Finally, I said, the peasants threw up their hands in frustration. There was no way this cow from Amiens would mate. But instead of giving up, they decided to consult the smartest man in the duchy. A knight of such rare wisdom, such vision, he knew why all things were as they were. I noticed Norcross reclining on his elbow, following the tale. I strode up to him. Someone like you, knight, I said. The crowd cackled. Your story airs there, said Baldwin, laughing, if it's brains you want. So I've heard, I bowed to the duke, but for the purpose of the tale, he'll do. Norcross's amusement began to sour, and he glared at me, red-faced. So the peasants came to this very wise knight, and they told him of their problem with the cow. They moaned, what must we do? The wise knight replied, You say if the bull tries to mount it this way, it wiggles left, and from this direction it wiggles right? Yes, they cried. The knight thought it over. I do not know if I could solve your dilemma, he said, but I know one thing. Your cow's from Amiens, is it not? Yes, yes, the peasant shouted. It is indeed from Amiens. How could you possibly know? I turned back to Norcross. I perched on the table next to him. Because my wife, the knight muttered, she is from Amiens as well. The hall burst into laughter. The knights, the duke, the ladies, all except Norcross. Then the vast room echoed with applause. Baldwin came up and slapped me on the back. You were indeed funny, fool. You have other jokes like this? Many, I replied. To punctuate the point, I sprang into a forward flip, then one backwards. The crowd ooed. They must laugh well in Bore. You may stay, my new companion. You're hired. I raised my arms in triumph. The large room echoed with applause. 
But inside, I knew I stood inches from the very men I had sworn to kill. Palimpos, as of this day, you are retired, Baldwin declared. Show the new fool your spot. Retired? But I have no desire, my liege. Haven't I served you with all my wit? With what little you have. So you are unretired, then. I grant you a new job, in the graveyard. See if we can cheer up the audience there. Chapter 45 Two days after my arrival, Baldwin announced a great feast at court, with counts, knights, and other noble-born invited from all over the region. The duke knew how to waste what had been earned by his poor serfs. I was instructed by the Lord's Chamberlain that I would be the main act at the festivities. Baldwin's wife, the Lady Heloise, had heard of my audition was eager to see my act. This would be my first real test. The day of the gathering, the entire castle bustled with activity. An endless army of servants wearing their finest uniforms, tunics of the same purple and white, marched dishware and elaborate candelabras into the great hall. Minstrels practiced on the lawn. Giant logs were loaded into the hearths. The luscious aroma of roasting goose, pig, and sheep permeated the castle. I spent the day polishing my routine. This was my coming out, my first real performance. I had to shine to remain in Baldwin's good graces. I juggled, twirled my staff, practiced my flips back and forth, went over my tales and jokes. Finally, the evening of the feast was at hand. Nervous as a groom, I made my way to the banquet hall. Four long tables filled the room, each covered in the finest linen cloth and set with candelabras engraved with the Duke's lion shield. Arriving guests were greeted with a flourish of horns. I sauntered up to each, announcing it with playful epithets. His baudiness, the Duke of Loire, and his lovely niece, uh, wife, the Lady Kate. It was all meant to trump the husband and praise the wife, no matter how plain she might be. Everyone played along. Only when the room filled did Baldwin and his lady, Heloise, make their entrance. One glance made it obvious to me that Baldwin had not married for looks. The couple waded through the room, Baldwin hugging and joking with the men, Heloise cursing and receiving lavish praise. They took seats at the head of the largest table. When their guests were all seated, Baldwin stood and raised a goblet. Welcome, everyone. Tonight we have much to cheer. The court has been enriched by a new flock, and the arrival of a fool from Boré. He will make us laugh. Or else. I have heard my husband's new pet is quite the rage, Lady Heloise announced. Perhaps he will set the tone with a few jests. I took a deep breath, then I hopped around to the head table. I'll do my best, my lady. I scampered towards her, but threw myself into the lap of an old fat man seated down the row. I grinned, stroking his beard. I will be honored to perform for you, Your Grace. I... Here, fool, Lady Heloise called. I am over here. Gads, I shot out of the man's lap. Of course, my lady. I must have been blinded by your beauty so much so I could not see. There was a trickle of laughter. Surely, fool, Lady Heloise called. You did not have the crowd shouting your name the other day with such mild flattery. Perhaps it is I who am blinded. Is that Hugh I see there, or Palimpos? The room chuckled at the hostess's wit. Even I bowed, warming to the challenge. At the end of the table, a pot-bellied priest was sucking down a mug of ale. I hopped onto the table in front of him. Plates and mugs clattering. There's this one, then. 
A man went to a priest to confess his many sins. He said he had much to share. The father looked up. To me? We'll see, father, how you feel about it at the end. First, the man confessed he had stolen from a friend, but added that his friend had stolen back something of equal value. One thing cancels out the other, the priest replied. You were absolved. It is true, the priest nodded. Next, I went on, the fellow said he had beaten the man with a stick, but had received equal blows in return. Again, these both cancel each other out, the priest replied. You owe God nothing. Now this penitent since he could get away with anything. He said there was something else to confess, one more sin, but he was too ashamed. When the priest encouraged him, he said, Once, Father, I had your sister. My sister, the priest bellowed. The man was sure he was about to fill a holy wrath. And I have had your mother on several occasions, the priest said. Again, they cancel each other out. So we're both absolved. The guests clapped and laughed. The embarrassed priest looked around the room and clapped as well. More, fool, Lady Heloise shouted, in the same temper. She turned to Baldwin. Where have you been hiding this treasure? The room bubbled with good cheer. Food was served, swan and goose and pig. Goblets and mugs were filled by servants scurrying about. I leapt up to a server carrying a roast on a tray. I took a whiff of the meat. Superb, I sighed. Who knows the difference between medium and rare? Diners at the table looked around and shrugged. I went up to a blushing lady. Six inches is medium, my lady, but eight is rare. Again, they roared. I had it going. I spotted Baldwin taking congratulations, seeming delighted with the performance. To much fanfare, a train of servers marched in from the kitchen, carrying prepared plates. Baldwin stood. Lamb, guests, from our new flock. Baldwin stuck a knife into a slice of lamb and chewed off a piece in front of his server. Delicious server, wouldn't you say? It is, my lord. The server bowed stiffly. To my horror, I realized that the dejected servant was the same farmer from whom Baldwin had just chiseled the flock two days before. Suddenly, my blood stirred in rage. Please, Jester, do continue, Baldwin said with a mouthful of meat. I will, my lord, I bowed. I spotted Norcross at the end of Baldwin's table, stabbing his meat among a row of other knights. Is that my lord Norcross I see stuffing his face over there? Norcross looked up. Then his eyes narrowed on me. Tell me, I asked the crowd, who is a greater hero to our lord than the brave Norcross? Who among us could be more forgiven for conceit? In fact, I've heard this good knight is so conceited that during climax, he calls out his own name. Norcross put his knife down. He stared at me, juice running through his beard. Laughter ensued, but as the knight's face tightened, it trickled away. And there are those who ask, I continued, what do a holiday decoration and my Lord Norcross have in common? This time, there were no amused mutterings. A tense silence hung in the air. You will find, I said, that their balls are just for decoration. With that, the knight shot up, drawing his sword. He lunged around the crowded table towards me. I pretended to flee. Help me, help me, my Lord. I have no sword, yet I fear I struck too deep. I did a flip and ran around the table towards Baldwin. Norcross pursued, weighed down and slightly drunk. 
I easily avoided him, circling the table to the merriment of the crowd, who almost seemed to be taking bets as to whether the knight would catch me and cut my throat. Finally, I threw myself in the protection of Baldwin's lap. He will kill me, my lord. He will not, Baldwin replied. Relax, Norcross. Our new fool has managed to get under your skin. A good laugh, not a killing, should soothe the wound. He insults me, my lord. I stand for that from no man. This is no man, Baldwin cackled. He is but a fool, and he provides as much entertainment. I have served you well, the red-faced knight seethed. I demand to fight the fool. You will not, Lady Halloween's rose. The fool has acted on my bidding. If anything untimely happens to him, I will know the author. You may feel safe, Hugh. Norcross exhaled a huge, deep, frustrated breath, the object of all eyes in the room. Slowly, he let his master's sword slip back into a sheath. Next time, fool, he said, the laugh will be mine. He went back to his seat, never once removing his stare from me. You have picked an adversary who is not one to anger, Baldwin chuckled as he ate his lamb. He tossed some bits of fat off his plate to the floor. Here, help yourself. I looked across the room at Norcross. I knew I had made an enemy for life. But so had he. Chapter 46 I had no time to waste. I set out to find Sophie. She was alive. I knew it. My conversation with Norcross had given me instant status among the castle staff. I was given a name, Hugh the Brave. Or, I was told, with respect to Norcross's wrath, Hugh the Brief. People who I sent served the Duke only out of fear or obligation came and whispered their support. I was able to make a few useful friends. There was Bet, the cook, a chubby, red-faced woman with a sharp tongue who kept the kitchen running like a spotless ship, and Jacques, the upstairs valet du chambre, who took meals next to me in the kitchen. Even a cheerful sergeant at arms at the court, Henri, who laughed at my jokes. I questioned all of them. Asking if they had heard of a fair, blonde woman held captive in the castle, keeping my reasons close to the vest. No one had. Check the brothels? The sergeant winked. Once the nobles had no use for them, they'd be sent there. So I did. I made the rounds, pretending to be a choosy customer. But, thank God, no one fitting Sophie's description was among the poor hordes of Triel. You look a little drawn in the face for a jester. Bet, the cook, observed one morning as she pounded out her dough. You lost sweetheart again? I wished I could take her into my confidence. Not mine, Bet, but a friend's, I lied. Someone asked me to inquire. A friend's, you say? The cook eyed me skeptically. She seemed to play with me. Is she highborn or common? I looked up from my bowl. How would a rogue like me know anyone highborn, I grinned. Except you, perhaps. Oh, yes, me, Bet cackled. I'm the Duke's own blood. That's why I slave in this hearth until dark every day. She laughed and went about her chores. But when she returned lugging a pot, she crept behind me and said confidingly, Perhaps it's the tavern you want, love. I looked up. The tavern? She reached up on her tiptoes for a bowl of garlic heads high on a shelf. The dungeons, she said under her breath. They're always filled with mouths to feed, at least for a short while. We called them Le Tavern. 
Everyone goes in on their two feet, but it usually takes a team of four to carry them out. I looked to thank her, but Bet quickly breathed to the other side of the kitchen, peeling the garlic for her soup. The tavern. For days afterwards, I spied on it in the courtyard while taking my daily stroll. A heavy iron door, always guarded by at least two soldiers from Baldwin's reserve. Once or twice, I sauntered over, trying to warm up the guards. I did a little magic trick, tossed some balls in the air, twirled my staff. I never got so much as a snicker. Bug off, fool, one guard barked at me. No one here even remembers how to laugh. You want a peek? Another barked. I'm sure Norcross will find you a room. I hurried away, pretending his very name had sent me trembling. But I continued plotting. How to get in? Who could help me? I tried the Chamberlain. I even tried to play my liege, Baldwin. One day after court, I sidled up to him. Time for a drink, my lord. How about I buy you one? In the tavern. Baldwin laughed and said to his coterie, Fool wants a drink so bad he's willing to risk the pox to get it. One night, as I took my meal in the kitchen, Bet sat down with me. You're a strange sort, Hugh. All day you're smiles and tricks, but at night you sulk and brew like a lost lover. Why do I think this loss you feel is not a friend's? I can no longer hide my sadness. I had to trust someone. You're right, Bet. It is my wife I seek. She was taken from my village by raiding knights. I know she's here. I can feel it in my blood. Bet did not show surprise. She only smiled. I knew you were no fool, she said. And I could be a friend, she added, if you need one. I need one more than you can know, I said desperate. But why? Be sure, not for your silly tricks, Hugh, or your flattery. Bet's expression changed, grew warmer. Jeffrey and Isabel, Hugh, they're my cousins. Why do you think I always saved you the best scraps of meat? You don't think you're that funny, do you? I owe you their lives, Hugh. I grasped her hands. The tavern, Bet. I have to get in. I've tried everything, but there's no way. No way? The cook stared at me for a long time, searching my intentions. For a fool, maybe. Only a fool would want to get in a La Tavern. But there's a saying here. The best way to end up in the soup is to ask the cook. Chapter 47 It was chilly for a summer night in Boré. A breeze blew over the gardens. The lady Emily huddled in her cloak. At her side was a jester, Norbert. Emily had tried to read her book of chansons to Jess that night. But the pages turned emptily, her thoughts drifting into space like wisps of smoke. The rhymes of poets and the tales of imaginary heroes no longer captivated her. Her heart ached with a confusion she had never known before. It always came back to one thing. One face. It's just one thing that's got me slipping. What is happening to me, she wondered. I feel I'm going mad. Norbert had noticed it. The jester had knocked on her door earlier that night. I know laughter, my lady. And to know that, I must know melancholy, too. So you're a jester and now a physician, too, she pretended to scold him. It takes no physician to see what ails you, lady. You miss the lad, don't you? With anyone else, she would have bitten her tongue. I do miss him, jester. I cannot lie. The jester sat across from her. You are not alone. I miss him, too. This was something new for Emily. She was used to feeling that men were like flies, nuisances, always buzzing around her. 
too concerned with their boasting their deeds to be taken seriously. But this was different. How had it happened? She had only known Hugh for weeks. His life was a world apart from hers, yet she knew everything about him. Most likely, she would never see him again. I feel I have sent him on this quest, she told Norbert. And now, I wish I could bring him back. You did not send him, lady. And with all respects, he is not yours to bring back. No. Norbert was right. Hugh was not hers. She had only stumbled upon him. So she huddled in the garden that night. She needed to feel the air on her face. Somehow, out here, under the same moon, she felt closer to him. I don't know if I'll ever see you again, Hugh DeLuke. But I pray I do. Somehow. Some way. You risk a lot to have such feelings, Norbert said. They are not planned. They just are. He took her hand. There was a moment between them. Not as lady and servant, but as friends. Emily blushed, then smiled. It seems my heart is owned by jesters from all around. Do not worry, my lady. Our red is canny and resourceful. I taught him, you know. A chip off the old block. I'm sure he's fine. He'll find his wife. A jester and a physician and now a seer too. She hugged the jester. Thank you, Norbert. Then she watched him go back inside. It was late. The garden was still. She had promised the priest she would wake early for morning prayers. Be safe, Hugh DeLuke, she whispered, then turned back towards the castle. She headed along the loggia above the gardens to the living quarters. Then, out of the night, voices came to her from below. Who could be out here at this hour? Emily hid behind a column and peered into the deep shadows below. A man and woman, voices raised. She strained to hear. This is not it, Knight, the woman said. This is not the treasure. It was Anne, out there in the dark with a man. He didn't look like a knight, more like a monk, in robes, but with a sword. Emily thought she had stumbled across something she should not have seen. Anne was angry. She had never heard her mistress's tone this hard. You know what my husband wants, she said. Find it! Chapter 48 A few days later, as I took my evening meal, Beth the cook winked and drew me aside. There's a way, she said, if you still want to see the tavern. How? I asked, leaning in close. And how soon? It's not exactly a state secret, Jester. People had to eat, don't they? Guards, soldiers, even prisoners. Every day my kitchen brings an evening meal to the dungeon. Who would mind if it was brought up by the fool? My eyes lit up. The fool doing errands for the cook. It could work. I'll give it a try, Bet said. The rest is up to you. If your wife is there, Hugh, it'll take more than luck to get her out. Just don't bring the Duke's awful wrath down on me. I shook her hand and squeezed it. I will bring nothing down upon you except my gratitude. I owe you much, Bet. I told you. I owe you my cousin's lives. But somehow, I think it is more than what I did for Jeffrey, Isabel, and Thomas on the road here. She smiled and tossed a turnip into the pot. Baldwin is our lead, she sniffed, but he can never rule our hearts. I see why you have come. I can see you're in love. These hands may be rough and ugly, but I am not so removed from matters of the heart. I began to blush. Am I so transparent? Don't worry, love. No one else would notice. They're too busy grabbing their sides and laughing at your silly jokes. 
I raise an onion the way one would raise a mug to make a toast. We will keep each other's trust, Bet. She lifted a turnip. We tapped them together. I feel a headache coming on, she frowned. Tomorrow Eve, be here at dusk. And something else, Hugh. You asked if a woman was being held in the cells. I checked. There is a lady staying in the tavern. One who might fit your wife's description. Fair-haired. And she keeps talking about an infant. These words. They were like the most exquisite magic for my soul. What was only a hope for so long now sprang free. Sophie was here. I knew it now. I will see her tomorrow night at last. I hugged Bet, almost knocking the poor woman into her pot of soup. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. It takes like eight seconds. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and copy and paste that into the Podchaser app. And then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.